Thank you, brother, for praying. I, I think uh, our prayer time as our elders lead, lead us on Sunday morning is, is the most spiritual thing that we can do on a Sunday morning, to pray and confess our dependence. So thank you, Kent, for leading us in that. And it's my fault about the video announcement. It is good to worship with you this morning, brothers and sisters. Please grab a, a copy of the scriptures if you haven't. And turn to Psalm 47. Um, we'll, we'll be in Psalm 47. We'll read this passage, and then we'll spend most of our time in John's Gospel, in John 9. And our sermon title this morning is, Who is in Charge? And I'll get right to the main idea this morning. Faithful followers of Christ agree that He is King. Now, we may disagree on the music style that we think is most engaging and wholesome for a church service. We may disagree on what the layout of the sanctuary should be. We might disagree on matters of church polity, how communion should be served, and what kind of food should be at the church picnic. The body of Jesus Christ is not unified on such matters. Regardless of your political affiliation, your schooling choices for your kids, your socioeconomic status, your age, or even your Vikings or Packers loyalty, regardless of all of that, we are agreed upon one key issue. Christ is king. But are we agreed upon this? I'll have to confess, as I look at my own life, I recognize that I don't live and function as though that is always true. And either do you. The idea of kingship is something I think we struggle with as Western 21st century American thinkers. We swim in the waters of another king, the Burger King. We've been taught through an unbiblical lens that we can have it our way. Whether it's complicated orders through the Starbucks drive-thru, choosing our own sexual identity, or even in the local church, members and attendees demanding that they have their preferences met. The idea that we don't have a voice, an opinion, or at least a representative vote, that is completely contrary to the way that we operate and the way that we think. There will be no democracy in heaven. There will be no votes. There will be no need for adjusted latte orders. There will be no room for you to share some grand ideas that you have about the decoration of the streets of gold. It's hard to imagine, at least for me, because I operate out of what I think is best. To trust that I don't need a voice because the king of heaven has given and prepared everything that I need, just as it needs to be. Well, that's an act of faith. An act of faith I'd like to see you and I take more and more in the life that we've been given. So read with me, please, Psalm 47. Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. For the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. 
He subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. He chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loves. God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our King. Sing praises. For God is the King of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. God reigns over the nations. God sits on His holy throne. The princes of the people gather as the people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. This can be a difficult song to read or to sing, depending on where you find your heart this morning. And it was no different for the nation of Israel. Verse 1 centers the main idea of our sermon this morning. Clap your hands, all peoples. Now, there's some language and some cultural barriers that robs us a little bit of the meaning of this verse. Clapping likely isn't how we imagine it today. Whether it's the polite golf clap or the roarous celebration of our response as we sing truth on Sunday or we see someone achieve something great and we clap, Israel understood it a little differently. The word clap really has the idea of striking or striking a blow or securing something. It actually is more like a handshake or a fist bump. A securing of an agreement. So we could read verse 1 this way. Fist bump. Shake hands in agreement, all y'all. You didn't know the sons of Korah were from Alabama. And do it in celebration and joy because the Lord is the great king over the earth. And as we read, our psalm describes the king as one to be feared, someone who conquered our enemies, someone who chose us in love, has given us a heritage, someone we sing praise to, and the one who reigns as Lord over the princes and the big shots of earth and even our own hearts. Now, I think I can say on a Sunday morning in a religious setting like this one and get away with it that Christ is king. Jesus is the fulfillment of this psalm in the New Covenant. He is the head of the church, the head of Lakewood, And my heart belongs to him. He is my king. I can say that on a Sunday, but tomorrow, on a Monday morning, in the midst of my junk, in the midst of relationships and work and kids and sin, am I operating? Are you, are we all operating as though I have, we have no authority over our life? That he's king and we follow him. That it's not about what we want, it's about what He wants. That we must decrease and He must increase. Is that true of us? Do we dare to pray the Lord's Prayer? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In heaven, I lose all my rights and simply cling to and celebrate the sun who warms and satisfies the pleasures of my heart. In heaven, 
I have no voice of my own, but I follow his perfectly. In heaven, I have no need for change because his decrees and plans are enough for me. In heaven, my sin nature is removed. I will be like him and I will truly die to self and worship Jesus more than I worship myself. If I pray the Lord's Prayer, if I want it on earth as it is in heaven, it means that I follow the King now. That may give many of us reservations. The idea of one person being in control. The idea of not having a vote, an opinion. Trusting like we've never trusted before. That our best interests are in mind as they make decisions for us. How can we live like that now? Psalm 47, the clapping, the agreeing, and the celebrating of the king and his rule over our life comes when we know and trust him. And if you're here considering Christianity, that feels like a big leap. Can I trust Jesus? If I follow him, will he have my best interest in mind as it's his way and not mine? Maybe you're here and you are a faithful follower of Christ and your heart has grown dull. There are seasons like that. And perhaps King Jesus isn't someone you've thought to follow and your affection toward him has waned. Well, allow us now to go to John 9 to see What kind of king we are called to agree, to worship, and to follow. Because we can read Psalm 47, and I can sit up here and tell you to clap and to agree and to celebrate the King Jesus. But unless we see him and his kingship, we're not quite sure if he's really someone we want to follow. So, We come now in John 9, and we find ourselves in the middle of Jesus' earthly ministry. When Jesus started his ministry, the first words out of his mouth were, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom is at hand because the king has arrived. But Jesus' kingship looks different from what we may think when it comes to kings. Kids, You can think of stories of silly kings in cartoons, perhaps. Or maybe some of us can think of the king wannabe, like Prince Humperdinck in the movie Princess Bride. If you don't know what I'm talking about, I'm offended. Jesus, he doesn't come with pomp, arrogance, and a heavy hand. We see a king in John 9 who serves. Now, walk with me through this historical account of Jesus as king. Read with me verses 1 through 7. We see the miracle. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, "Uh, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. 
Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seen. One of the remarkable things of this king, we read immediately in verse 1. As he passed by, he saw. Jesus operated in such a way where his leadership, his reign, and even his kingly procession as he walked the dirt roads of the Middle East was marked by having eyes for others. Jesus was not a king who had his nose lifted up, his eyes to the heavens where he had come from, refusing to meet the needy gaze of subjects of his reign. This king looked at people. This king looked at people with compassion as people who were needy and without a shepherd. He looked at people who had been mistreated and ignored by others, especially by kings and leaders. And Jesus saw them. He saw them as valuable and precious, made in the image of God. And so he looks at you, Lakewood. You may not be born blind, but we have our issues. Whether it's spiritual blindness, sin, other physical ailments, feelings of inadequacy, loneliness, pride, or frustration, brothers and sisters, the Savior walks these roads and he sees you. And because the king sees people, so did the disciples. And a debate takes place whose fault it was for this man's condition. Now, there's a whole sermon here someday, but Jesus essentially points out that circumstances are not always the result of sin. Sometimes things just play out the way that they do, even physical blindness, so that the glory of God might be displayed in that life. So in our story here, Jesus heals a blind man. He's a king who sees, and he's a king who helps. He's a willing king, a powerful king. He doesn't simply push unilateral policy. He bends to his people in love and he serves them. Psalm 47, is that a king that you can shout out and worship and clap in agreement? Oh, I think so. But that's the miracle. Notice the response. Response number one in verses 8 through 12. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but it's like him. Twin brother, maybe. Then how were your eyes opened? That's what they said to him. Verse 11, he answered, The man 
called Jesus, made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I don't know. Response number one. Can you imagine the king of the universe comes and spits on your face and you can see? I wish he'd come and spit on my face and some of the issues I have in my life. Now, this man, his neighbors, everyone's in shock. So Jesus, he just made mud with spit in the ground and he he put it on your eyes and you're able to see. Are you sure you're the same guy? This isn't some practical joke. No, like we said, identical twin around the corner. Notice the response of the former blind man again in verse 11. The man called Jesus, made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go. The man called Jesus. Who healed you? Some some guy. A man did. Response number two. Starting verse 13. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day, big issue, when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man, Jesus, is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, well, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? What's your opinion? He said, he's a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of the man. Let's call mom and dad who had received his sight, and they asked them, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? How? How then does he now see? His parents answered, Well, we know this is our son. Same brat that we raised all those years. Same guy. We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we do not know. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He's of age. He'll speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he's of age. Ask him. The religious leaders are brought in here now, the big shots. And it's clear that they have issues with this whole thing. They were so focused on the letter of the law and the breaking of the Sabbath, they failed to appreciate the miracle. They failed to recognize the king. Our former blind man explains the story again. 
what happened with his mud, with his eyesight. And there's some division and debate among the religious leaders. But notice the changed response from the man in verse 17 again. He said, he is a prophet. Jesus, this king, who saw him, who had compassion on him, who helped him when others could not. He's no longer just a man in verse 11. He's a prophet. Our friend's physical side has been healed, and it seems that the scales of his heart and his eyes are falling off as well because his sight of Jesus is becoming more and more clear. He's not simply a man. He's a mouthpiece of the Most High God. He's someone who acts and speaks on God's behalf. He is another prophet, he says. And the parents are brought in, and it seems that they don't quite have the boldness that their son does. While their son is beginning to make lofty proclamations about Jesus, the parents are hesitant because they too, according to verse 22, are coming to the conclusion themselves that the miracle worker isn't simply a man or a prophet, but may in fact be the Christ. So they throw it back to their son. And here, even the parents, like themselves, find themselves, the parents do, they find themselves in the midst of their own spiritual journey. You know what? Not everyone's in the same place on their spiritual journey, right? And that's a reminder that we are all where we are. Some of us may not recognize the kingship of Christ. Some of us may fearfully restrain our lips from admitting it. May we show grace to one another and help one another on this dangerous journey. Response number three, starting in verse 24. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Come on, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I've told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are the disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why? <laughs> this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes? We know that God does not listen to sinners. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never, never since the, the world has begun has it heard that anyone has opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin and you would teach us? And they cast him out. 
round two, ding, ding. The religious leaders versus the former blind man. They press him in. I like our guy here. He has some spunk to him, and he pushes back against the hard-heartedness of our Pharisees. And I love verse 25. Whether he's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now, now I see. I don't have answers to all your theological questions. I only know what I have experienced and felt and see in my life. So instead of rejoicing that the king has arrived, instead of celebrating the amazing work and healing of a man born blind, there's a theological debate that takes place. I'm not here for it, and neither are they. This is the equivalent in our day of arguing about some silly minor thing in the scriptures or in our culture and missing the big picture and the main point that Jesus, in fact, is king and savior. Notice, though, the response of the man again in verse 33. He says, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Oh, how the scales continue to fall from our former blind man. Jesus, the gracious king and healer, was just a man in verse 11. He was a prophet, a mouthpiece, acting and speaking for God in verse 18. Now in verse 33, Jesus is from God. He finds his origin in God himself. And as the Apostle John would later write years later that Jesus, this word is with God, is God, and established the heavens and earth. Do you see the progression? Oh, he's just a man. Okay, maybe he's a prophet. No, he's from God. Verse 34, the religious elites don't have time for a sinner. They don't have time for someone they disagree with. So they kick him to the curb. Notice with me our last progression, starting in verse 35. We've seen the responses, and now, behold your king. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus, that guy. Verse 37, Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. I think Jesus has a sense of humor. Verse 38, he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, <laughs> are, are we, Jesus, are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. It's verse 35 that I can't get past. It's verse 35 that makes my heart want to clap. 
and a fist bump and shake some hands in agreement and shout for joy. It's verse 35 that fulfills Psalm 47 in my heart and makes me want to fear and awe and follow Christ the King. This world can be a lonely place. And we can all feel like castouts, castaways. And maybe we haven't been thrown out of a synagogue lately, but we have been left or thrown out of relationships, of communities and families. We have felt the pain of being alone. And like our former blind man, we have been accused and misunderstood and disagreed with in life. Jesus heard, verse 35 says, Jesus heard that they cast him out. Our king doesn't simply take walks around dusty roads, meeting the gaze of our people and sees them. But our king has his ear to the ground and is aware of what is going on in our life. He doesn't simply heal us and give us sight and leave. He follows up. He's there. He serves. And he comes alongside us even when others would cast us out. Jesus didn't simply hear, our text reads, it says, and having found him. Jesus sought him out. The man didn't know where to go, who to turn to, which direction to go from here. And that's okay. If you don't know where to go right now, that's okay. Jesus finds us out even when we're not sure how to look for him. <laughs> and you know what comes after John 9, by the way? Well, John 10, it goes 9, 10. And John 10 is the good shepherd. Jesus declaring that he is the good shepherd. The one who leads, the one who finds, the one who tends and cares for his people. Psalm 47. I will sing to our king. For God in Christ is king over all the earth. The king who hears and seeks out his people. That is a king worth following. Notice the final response of our former blind man in verse 38. Well, I'll read it again. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Our former blind man comes to the final destination of a spiritual journey. He believes and bends the knee and worships the king. Was this man's life perfect from here on out? Was he ever allowed back into the synagogue to worship? Was there fracturing with his parents and their different responses to the religious leaders? Was he able to get employed and start a family? Did he have to relocate and go to a new town? Did he feel cast out from his community, from others who did not bow to knee, the knee to Jesus? We don't know the answers to these questions. We simply know that his life was completely recalibrated and he now followed the king, the ruler, the healer, the one who knows what is best for his life and for his soul. 
And there's a warning for us in this passage, Lakewood. Verse 41 can be a condemning verse for you and I. Because if like the Pharisees, we say we see clearly. If we say we see the scriptures, and even if we say we see the kingship of Christ clearly, our life and our true trust and our allegiance will show our true colors. If we operate like the Pharisees, as the king of our own life, or the king of our own church even, if we operate that way, our guilt will remain. We will fail to see health in our church and change in our hearts. We will find it difficult to submit to the King Jesus who sits on the throne now and reigns over the hearts of his people. Because you see, many years would pass and Jesus would do better than spitting, making mud and healing physical sight. He would die on a cross to pay for the sins of the world. He would be buried and lie in a grave. And he would literally and physically rise from the dead three days later. And this was the greater miracle. This would offer the healing we truly needed. The healing of our souls. Jesus died and rose again to wash out not just our eyes but our hearts. Those who trust and cling to him will be changed, will be healed, and will be given a new life starting now. And for those of us who have experienced that new life, he graciously refreshes that life again and again and again. Even when we're like that former blind man, cast out, wondering, not sure where to go. He has his ear to the ground. He's heard, he sees, and he will find you out. Those who trust in him will truly worship and follow the king. May it be true of us. Let me read again these verses from Psalm 47. Clap your hands, you peoples. Agree, all y'all. Shout to God with loud songs of joy, for the Lord the Most High is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. He subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. He chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob, in whom he loves. Lakewood, he loves you. He is our king. May we faithfully follow him. Amen. Pray with me. Oh, Father, would our clapping not simply be an outward expression, but in a green, a securing, and a declaring of our hearts. Would we agree here this morning that Christ is King? And God, we confess that that is hard. 
that so often we want to be king of our own lives, our own families, our own church. Oh, Lord, would you rank supreme? Would you subdue even our own hearts? Would we, like that blind man in John 9, come to the spiritual conclusion, have our own journey and come to the destination of bowing our knee to you, God? Thank you that you are a king worth following. We all have been burnt by people, by friends, by workers, by leadership, by political allegiance. Father, we have not experienced a a kingship that brings satisfaction to our souls because you want us to see time and time again that only Christ can bring that. So as we go out this week, young and old, God, would you bend our hearts to Christ? Would we follow his ways and know true joy and peace in this life and one day fully in eternity? Lord, please do this. And we pray this in his name. Amen.